0: Well, I'd invite you to open your Bible to Acts, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. And of course, if you need uh, to take a moment listening to this by audio, um, you can hit the pause button and turn there as we prepare to read Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. When they were released, that's a reference to Peter and John being released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, or Christ there. For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to this text, to the realities to which this text points to, that you would challenge us, that you would stir our affections for the gospel, and that you would stir our devotion to you. One God, Father, Son, and Spirit, Amen. Over the last two weeks, we've looked at a number of psalms together, and I've encouraged you to learn how to pray from those psalms. I really do think, given the crisis that we're in, uh, given the situation we're in, I really do think this is the best possible spiritual practice. Uh, and I would say that in virtually any situation Uh, that involved some sort of distress. Um, Many of you know, when you've sought pastoral counsel from me, Uh, that the recommendation is often spend time in the Psalms, pray the Psalms. And and the reason is they give a a perspective on the world from every angle. John Calvin referred to them as an anatomy of the soul. In in other words, they tell us about everything the spiritual life is going to go through, the ups and the downs and the in-betweens. The Psalms, for that reason, have always formed the foundation of Christian prayer. They formed the foundation of Jewish prayer before there was any historical Christian faith. Today, I want to take one more sermon to consider the importance of the Psalms for shaping our prayer life. So we did Palm Sunday and then three Easter or Holy Week devotionals and then an Easter Psalm. And so that was five that we had a chance to look at um, but this is sort of an appendix to that same series, if you will. So this is a, a, a random sermon, uh, in a sense, but it's also attached to that series. And then next week, we'll get into Lamentations, which are their own form of psalm. Uh, it, it's just not the book of Psalms. Now, praying the Psalms is not just an idea someone came up with. It, it's not just an idea that I'm saying we should do. It is biblical, it is a pattern we see in Scripture. The most referenced part of the Old Testament by the New Testament is the book of Psalms. The Psalms, then, are like a calibrating tool for Christians. They are a compass. They orient us in the world. They help us make sense out of where we are and where we are going. But in order to benefit From them, as a calibrating tool, we must familiarize ourselves with them. They must become part of our habit. Their language must become our language. So, let's take a look at Acts 4. And Before we read some of the verses, here's the context. Peter and John have healed a man in the name of Jesus. This has created a public disruption resulting in the arrest of Peter and John by the religious leaders at the temple. But there aren't any real charges. They haven't actually done anything wrong, so they can only hold them for so long. So the religious leaders threaten them many times, and then they release them. What's the threat? Well, that's in Acts four eighteen. Again, broader context here. So Acts four eighteen says, so they called them, that is the religious leaders called Peter and John, and charged them, here's the threat, not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So don't do that. If they continue talking about Jesus, there will be serious consequences. What would you do? Notice what Peter and John and the rest of the believers do. Verses 23 and the first half of 24. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. Their initial reaction is to pray. Is is that our first response? I'm afraid it's not mine. I don't know about you. Would that be our first response in the situation? Again, I'm afraid probably not. Or, Or would we rage and complain about it? Get on the phone and call our friends. Post something on Facebook. Contact somebody who has some political power. But Read the words in verse 24 closely. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. Notice also that prayer is not a private affair. It's not an individualistic practice. We, especially in our modern evangelical tradition, have reduced prayer to a me and God thing. We almost exclusively think of it as an individual practice. Consider our public prayers even. We, we, we liken them to private prayers uh, when we say things like, it doesn't matter if we can hear what is said because it's just one person talking to God. Well, no, actually, it does matter, and there's precedence in Scripture because worship is to be ordered. It's to be edifying. That's the teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, for example. So it is essential that we pray together. See, statements like that don't really have biblical traction. Corporate prayer... And by corporate, I mean the gathered body. Right? Corporate is the whole body, not individual prayer. Corporate prayer is a vital activity of God's people together. We see this in Acts two forty two, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. There we have the essential elements of the church. There are four: preaching the word of God, fellowship the Lord's Supper, and prayer. But none of those can be individualistic. Preaching requires more than one person, where the Word of God is heralded. Fellowship refers to a partnership and commitment. Can't do it alone. The Lord's Supper can't be taken alone. It's not a good idea to pull out some crackers and wine or, or, or juice and, and pretend to have the Lord's Supper. And prayer is also an activity primarily to be engaged in together. At least that's the pattern we see again and again. I'm not denying the importance of individual prayer. There's certainly private prayer throughout Scripture. We see it in Acts. Peter prays regularly. The point is, our prayer life can't be an either-or. It can't simply be made up of individual prayers between me and God, and it can't simply be, well, I'm at church and we pray together. You really do need both. But when we gather as the body, and this is why these sort of online services are so difficult and, and, and these remote services that we're doing right now that we're, we're still not actually being the church, and I think most of us realize that, um, we're being the church in one sense, but we're not gathering for worship in a really critical way, and, and I think most of us feel the same impulse to get back to doing that because it's so vital, and I think, I think most of us know it's vital. When we gather together, those prayers are really critical that we pray together. They're not filler for the service. They are important. They are part of what God has given His people to do. They are the pattern we see in Scripture. And so prayer is to be engaged in together. Now they begin their prayer in the second half of verse 24. And they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Notice how they address God. Sovereign Lord. It's one word. Greek word, it's a little bit unusual, it's not a real common word, occurring less than ten times in the entire New Testament, uh, but, but recognizes God as the owner, or uh, the, the one who is in control of all things, and notice this is consistent with their description that follows. They describe God's character, and this is all the opening of the prayer. You have this address to God, and then you have a description of his character, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Now, why do they address God this way? They are recognizing his sovereignty. And it's this truth that God is in control, that he's sovereign, that he's the king. That's what we mean by sovereign. It's this truth that establishes the foundation for their prayer. They are appealing to God because he is sovereign. And this pattern... And especially these words in particular are common throughout the biblical prayers especially the psalms. Now what can we learn about prayer from their address? Prayer isn't simply about rushing to ask God for things. Prayer is about fixing who God is in our hearts and minds. Prayer is about worshiping and adoring and praising God by acknowledging His majesty and glory. And we refer to this as adoration from adoring. My guess is that most of us spend little time here. And and when we try, we find it very unusual and difficult. Now, don't confuse this with Thanksgiving. Adoration and Thanksgiving are different. See, Thanksgiving is something we are familiar with. I bet about 95%, maybe higher, 95% of the prayers we begin hear begin this way. Lord, thank you for this day. Am I right? Isn't that the way that you think prayer begins? I do it almost reflexively because I've been so steeped in hearing it my entire life. But there's something worth thinking about here. And this is the distinction between adoration and thanksgiving. Are we more interested in what God has given than God himself? Now thanksgiving's not wrong. It is obviously a pattern we see in scripture. It is something that should characterize our prayers. But I'm saying we skip adoration in Almost all of our prayers, do we not? Why aren't we exalting God? One reason is that the way we were taught to pray isn't really rooted in Scripture. Spending time in adoration, acknowledging who God is, is absolutely essential. Think about it this way. How often do you pray and find it doesn't really help? It's not surprising when our prayers are like this. Lord, thank you for the day. Heal my cancer. Amen. If anything, you come out of that prayer more anxious, more worried, more concerned, less dependent on the Lord. But adoration reorients us. It changes our perspective. It infuses our mind and our heart with biblical truth. It causes us to gaze at God and see Him so that we can take the focus off of our problems. When we spend time praising God, meditating on His character, adoring Him in our prayer, gazing at His beauty, it changes the script that our life is following. For the believers in Acts 4, it reminds them that the threats of the religious leaders are not ultimate. Even if they should arrest them, beat them, and kill them, the Lord is still in control. He's still sovereign. And that's the function of this beginning part of their prayer where they adore God. Now, where did they get this from? Where did they learn it? They are immersed in the language of the Bible, especially the Psalms. And if we want to navigate the world as Christians, our little Sunday school prayers aren't going to cut it. The prayers of our culture aren't going to cut it. We need a prayer practice that is robustly biblical. That the believers in Acts are informed by Scripture is explicit because they quote Psalm 2 as part of their prayer. Look at verses 25 through 26. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit... Notice we have a pretty good description of Scripture here. God speaks through the mouth of a human by the Holy Spirit. So there is how Scripture works. It is God's Word even though men record it and write it down. Why did the Gentiles rage? This is Psalm 2. And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. I've already told you that word is Christ, or in the Hebrew it's Messiah. So against the Lord and against His Messiah, Christ anointed, they all mean the same thing. Now, why cite a psalm? Again, their entire view of the world is shaped by the scriptures. And I think this is one of the most important lessons we can learn from this passage. Our minds need to be so saturated by scripture that we have a biblical instinct. Let me repeat that. Our minds need to be so saturated by scripture that we have a biblical instinct. Now, how does that happen? Well, our input needs to change. We are bombarded with info. We li- live in the information age. And right now, it is info on the coronavirus 24-7. Virtually any major channel you turn on has information on it right now. There are rolling tickers. There are newspapers for us to read. There are endless Internet articles for us to read, with billions of Google searches being conducted each day. In six months, we may have other information to process, but nothing changes. We still have tons of information at our fingertips. And that information is constituting the input, what goes into our minds and hearts. But what we need is more biblical input, more theological content. See, not too long ago, faithful Christians attended morning prayer prior to work every morning. Can you imagine? We, we are so busy that it is almost unthinkable to think of spending time in church every single day. And when I say morning prayer, I mean a service very similar to the way we have done prayer on Wednesdays this year. Evening prayer was also common. When you are praying the Psalms and hearing Scripture as you do in those services, you are shaped by Scripture. And when you do that, as the gathered body of believers every day, you are shaped into a biblical thinking person. Yet, in our day, it is difficult to get weekly attendance at an hour-long church service. And if it happens to go over an hour, someone has some explaining to do, do they not? Then, we have the audacity to act pious and fuss about God being taken out of public schools or something like that. I would say some nonsense like that. I think there are many things we could talk about there, but one of the things is just the utter hypocrisy. Let me suggest an alternative. Perhaps those who identify as Christians should take a cue from Acts 4 and worry less about government intervention and instead pray together as the church. In other words, we don't really have any room to complain, although as Baptists I think we would encourage the separation anyway, but... We don't have any room to complain about something not being done in the public sector that we're not doing in the Christian sphere. Now, why would they cite Psalm 2? Without going into great detail, Psalm 2 is crucial for understanding the whole message of the Psalms. Psalm 2 tells us about God's King, the Messiah. Who will inherit the nations? Yet the nations will resist him. And the rest of the Psalms, by the way, are colored by this theme. Indeed, the whole of Scripture riffs on this theme. The believers in Acts 4 cite Psalm 2 because it makes sense out of the world. It makes sense out of the world they find themselves in. Yes, they are seeing it happen. In our world of information overload, truth has become a rare commodity. We, we live in an unstable world because of all the information flying at us. So we have this situation where our favorite political commentators spin stories to tell us about how to think and perceive the world. And you can't really know what to believe. And, and I'm not, this isn't a rant against the, the, the media, just not specifically. The, the point is that everybody is doing this. And it's very unstable. And headlines are written to shape our view of things. What we need is to take a step back and attend to God's Word as our source of truth, as our lens through which we see the world, as our compass for navigating the world. Let me put make that a, a bit sharper, the point I'm trying to make here. We will not think as Christians as long as we are taking our cues for how to think about the world from Fox News, CNN, the local newspaper. We will not learn to think as Christians until we take our cues from God's Word. You see the difference. Notice how Psalm 2 shapes their world. They see their current situation through the truth of Psalm 2, verses 27 and 28. For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They know Psalm 2. It says the nations will oppose the Christ. They aren't shaken by this reality because they are steeped in the truth of Scripture. It's not surprising to them when the nations gather together against Jesus because God's Word has given them a way of understanding the world. But notice, they also know that God has planned it this way, which is why they're not shaking in fear and immobilized by fear. Let's read verse 28 again. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God is sovereign over evil. Is a bombshell truth. And we desperately need to recover a classical view of God. I think modern evangelicals have a view of God that looks a whole lot more pagan than it does classically Christian. God is not scrambling to keep up with the troubles of this world. This is not some sort of weird dualism where there's an evil power that is giving God a hard time and God's just trying to overcome it with good. That's not the story Scripture tells. The light came into the world, John 1 says, and the darkness could not, could not extinguish it. Could not overcome it. It did not overcome it. In Job, it is Satan who is asking for permission from God because God is sovereign over evil. It may make us uncomfortable. It may cause sort of theological questions to arise in our mind. There's a whole branch of thinking about this. If you want to know the technical term, it's theodicy. Theodicy means how can a God be righteous in a world that is so wrong? Theodicy literally is a reference to God's righteousness, a defense of God's righteousness. This is a great question to ask. But the point Scripture is unashamed about is that God is absolutely, unquestionably in control. We desperately need that because God is not scrambling to keep up, He is orchestrating and planning all things according to the counsel of His will. That's the God of the Bible. That should be comforting. And it should cause us to worship and it should keep us from idolatry because everything else is inferior to this God. Idolatry, by the way, is trusting in created things rather than the creator. Prayerlessness is an expression of idolatry. The trusting in our country, our military, our economy, or more individually, our smarts, our work ethic, our money, fill in the blank. When we exchange the creator for the creature, we are breaking the first commandment. This prayer in Acts 4, in the reorienting nature of Scripture, as we learn to pray with Scripture, is to turn our attention to the sovereign Lord. Now, we desperately need that today. This is an aside and less of a central point to the sermon, but we desperately need that today as the idols of our hearts, our hope in security, modern medicine, economy, life, all of these things, which aren't bad things, none of them in and of themselves, but they become bad things when they become ultimate things, when we trust in them more than the Creator. Now comes the request. Let's retrace the logic before we hear their prayer request here. Since the Lord is in control, and since this is what we can expect from the world based on Scripture, we can now make our petition. That's the logic of this prayer. Verses 29 through 30. And now, Lord, look upon their threats, and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What would we ask for in these circumstances? Most likely, and I say this based on what I think I would ask for, we would ask for safety and protection. We might ask for fire to consume our enemies. But what does the early church ask for? Boldness. Boldness to speak. Why would they ask for that? So that they might preach the gospel. It's that important, that weighty, that precious. do you believe that? Is the gospel of Jesus the central pulse in your heart? Does it stir your heart when you hear it and I'm not talking about the sort of sentimental uh sentimental stuff that goes around and and, and makes us feel like we have to be singing these uh, these sentimental songs and things but but I am talking about when you hear the gospel, is it good news to your heart? Is it the most important thing? Here's a good gauge. Does the gospel cause your heart to stir and give you more hope than any other news you hear? Is it worth dying for? You see, that's their prayer, isn't it? Give us boldness to face whatever they throw at us. Make us faithful in the face of persecution. A few years ago, a pastor in a persecuted country made the comment that he didn't want American Christians to pray for them. He said, they will just pray for our protection and safety, but what we need them to pray for is our boldness and faithfulness. Then there's the Lord's answer. Look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, which is like Acts 2, by the way, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The Lord is sovereign and He hears the prayers of His people. He answers... Some of us may be skeptical of answered prayer, if we're honest. Some of that skepticism comes from the fact that we don't regularly practice prayer. In his excellent book on prayer, Tim Keller says, if we only pray occasionally about the big things, we can expect to only see one to two big answers in our lifetime. But if we regularly pray about everything, we will see many prayers answered. I think there's a striking contrast between us and these believers in Acts 4. I think it's a convicting contrast. Given the situation, would we pray? And I'm worried for me, and maybe for you, I'm not sure, but I'm worried for me, as I reflect on this, that the answer is no. Do we pray about decisions at the church. I've brought this up numerous times. And while some of this falls on me, as your pastor, much of it also falls on the church and the structure it currently has. If it were structured a bit differently, perhaps we could lay more blame at my feet. But the structure and the polity and the way things go mean that we're all implicated in this we see we will gladly voice our opinions and complaints but will we pray in the late 1970s church historian richard lovelace writing a really great book on how revivals happen in the history of the church a really practical book not not a, a history of revivals as such but how they happen he wrote this quote i think it's incredibly convicting listen closely the proportion of horizontal communication you know side to side right people to people Horizontal communication that goes on in the church in planning, arguing, and expounding is overwhelmingly greater than that which is vertical or upward. In worship, thanksgiving, confession, and intercession. You see what he's saying, that we do more side-to-side talking than we do upward toward God. Critically important committee meetings are begun and ended with formulary prayers, which are ritual obligations, and not genuine expressions of dependence. When problems and arguments ensue, they are seldom resolved by further prayer, but are wrangled out on the battlefield of human discourse. Perhaps it stems partly from the deficient teaching and emphasis on God himself throughout the church and partly from the man-centeredness of much religious activity. Deficiency in prayer both reflects and reinforces inattention toward God. When the church becomes a community organization that gives neat little devotions and talks on being a good person, when the church is consumed with all sorts of cultural and traditional markers and ignores the worship of the triune God, when Scripture is merely read without exposition, when commitment to Scripture is not prioritized, when sound doctrine is ignored... Man-centeredness ensues. When man-centeredness ensues, prayerlessness follows. I'm suggesting here that I, I think this is the point Richard Lovelace was pointing out. I'm suggesting that our prayerlessness is a symptom of the deeper problem. And that deeper problem goes back to the garden in Genesis 3. Our allergy to God. The gospel, of course, is the only answer to that. That in Christ, we can be reconciled to God. This is also why the prayer in Acts 4 begins with adoration of the sovereign God. To fix our inattention to God, to fix our allergy, we must steep ourselves in Scripture together and seek God's intervention. Let me pray for us. Lord, you are gracious and almighty. There is none that compares to you. And Lord, we must confess that we have been prayerless, that we have given attention to many things, to many structures and things that we like and things that we find important because and we were taught they were important or they were done a long time ago or we, we've just been blinded by idols that are actually in our presence. And we confess that our attention has been largely human-centered, that we have an allergy toward you because genuine and deep discussion about who you are and about your word are things that we often reject. We confess that this has all shown itself in a prayerless independence from you. We confess for every event and activity for every ministry we've engaged in in this church without seeking your face. Lord, I pray that you would bring us to repentance. I pray that you would bring us to greater dependence on the gospel of Jesus to reconcile us to you. And I pray that you would give us grace to be people who are steeped in your word, and who are genuine worshipers of you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.